online family. Thanks for tuning in to the Grace Church of Ocala podcast. We are equipping disciples who make disciples in Ocala, Florida. I'm Ryan Gagnon. We're going to be hearing today from Pastor Michael Lockstanford as he begins our latest sermon series, What's the Church For? A study in 1 Timothy. We have prayed about how best to meet our community with the gospel message of Jesus. We believe this digital component is a way of meeting our community here on the web. We hope God uses it to encourage and challenge you. We also encourage you to serve a local church body. Remember, you can't be the church by yourself. Part of meeting your community and introducing them to Jesus is being able to answer a simple question. What is the church for? People have busy lives and lots going on. The last thing most people want is another commitment for their time. After all, Sunday is the day most people call their day off, we found. As believers in Jesus Christ, we need to be able to answer that question effectively. Pastor Michael begins to help us answer that this week by explaining we are for a loving faith built on what is true. We meet together to help one another along this road we've taken called being Christ followers. We get the opportunity to not only have community with each other, but shared worship of the God who created us. People who do not follow Jesus tend to find this hard to understand. So let's begin by listening together as Pastor Michael unpacks the foundations upon which our faith is built. I think there's probably two different kinds of houses. There's houses that have hard rules that could be etched in stone, and then there were houses that maybe had soft rules, right? Did you, it sound, did you have a hard-ruled house, Miss Joan? I thought so. You thought so, <laughs> right. Yeah, um, we're not one of those houses that has rules like written on a wall. I'm not saying it's a bad thing to write your house rules down. I'm just saying that's not how we do our house. Um, but growing up, there were rules in the house, and, and whether they were hard and fast, like your bedtime is 7.15, or lights out is 7.15, 7 and then, you know, bedtime 7.30, however that works, it can get really, really structured. Or if it's just like, go to school, M- make sure you're at school. So I'm going to ask you to think first thing this morning. When is the time, whether they were written down or whether they weren't written down at all, whether they were really, really clearly defined or not clearly defined, when was the time that the rules of the house became the most clear? When you broke them, exactly. Whether you had a really strict house or whether you had a really lax house that you grew up in, the rules have a point of clarity when you cross them. There's a point where... It's the, the clearest that somebody can be is when they're saying what you just did was not what you were supposed to do. So as we're looking at the book of 1 Timothy today, we're asking what's church for, and we'll get to that question at the very end of where we're going. I'm not ignoring it. I'm just not ready to answer that question yet. But as we look in the letter of 1 Timothy, Paul, who's an apostle, we're familiar with his story, he um, you know, invested in the church at Ephesus, 
we just read how he was, um, he was pouring into them and said, I cried with you guys for three years to try and make sure that y'all were on the right track. Y'all know I'm invested in you. Well, a couple years later, he's writing to Timothy, and he's left Timothy to do a couple of things that we're going to talk about in the church at, at Ephesus. And it's one of those letters that's very clear on the places where the rules have been broken. <laughs> it's not clear exactly how people violated them, but it's like, y'all ought not to do that. You're like, you know that this was wrong. It's against the rules. You know, this isn't how people are supposed to behave in church. Y'all know better. And so we kind of get that as we're going through. But this is a really, really intimate letter. Let's look at 1 Timothy chapter 1. <clears throat> Paul opens up, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. So what does Paul call Timothy as he's greeting him? When he's opening up the letter, what does he say he is to him? His child, my true child in the faith. Timothy was a guy that Paul had invested his life in, who likely went around and traveled with him as he was going. And so we're going to see in a minute that Paul had sent Timothy on a mission to go do something, and, but it's somebody he cares about deeply. It's like sending your own kid out into the world, which can be super scary. Some of us are closer to that than others. When you're looking at you know, a teenager, late teenager, who's getting ready to go make decisions on their own, choose which team they're going to play for, at some point you have to let them do that. But you can also you know, write them some letters to encourage them to do the right thing. So let's pause real quick and let's pray together. Jesus, I thank you for this morning. Lord, thanks so much for your word. Thank you for this church, God, that you are building. And Lord, I thank you that we can ask hard questions together. Lord, I thank you that you are not afraid of reality. And Lord, I pray that as we're here today, God, that you would make yourself clear, your character, the things that you want from us. And Lord, that you'd give us hearts to hear hands to obey. God, that you'd bless us. Bless us with your goodness. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. So let's continue. I'm going to read that greeting one more time, and we'll read the first section of 1 Timothy chapter 1. It says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Lord. Verse 3, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus, so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without either understanding what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. So, we'll pause there. So, as Paul's writing, he says, Hey, I left you in Ephesus. Tell people to stop teaching bogus stuff. Says there's, I, want you to, I want you to tell them to stop teaching what they are teaching. It's not good. 
It's not helpful, and it doesn't have godly results. What does he say? These, these endless myths and endless genealogies promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. So the idea there being our faith is a stewardship from God and how we act it out. We take the gifts that we get from God and use them for the benefits of other people. And when, you get, when your doctrine gets you all hung up in genealogies, which... I don't know how people get hung up in that. That's not something that I get excited about. Um, I know that some people do get excited about genealogies and family trees. But genealogies and myths and stories, like if these things distract you from serving God and stewarding God's gifts to bless other people, then it's not helpful. These first verses are, faith is based on truth, based on truth, and lived in love. It's not enough to have the right answers and the right doctrinal, uh, doctrinal statements. It's not enough to be able to write on paper the answers of the test about what is salvation? Who is God? What is church for? It's not enough to be able to answer the questions, but our faith is based on that truth and then lived in love. Verse 5. This is the key to the whole thing. This is spoiler alert. This is the whole sermon right here. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. And it's possible that there are people in the church that missed it. There are certain persons who have swerved away from this and have shipwrecked their faith. That's at the end of it. That imagery is at the end of it. Desiring to be teachers of the law. They want to teach. They want to be valuable. They want to invest in other people. But they don't get what they're, they don't understand the content of what they're saying, and they don't understand the implications of what they teach. Without understanding either what they are saying, they don't understand what they're saying, and they don't understand the things about which they make confidence assertions. So the aim of the charge is faith worked out in love. Now, as an example of this, I don't want you to hear me saying that doctrine doesn't matter. I'm a seminary, theologically educated person. I've got the degree and stuff. I think the truth matters. If we're not based on truth, then we've got nothing going for us. Doctrine is important, but it's faith based on truth and lived in love. As an example, our church website. How many of us have been to our church website recently? How many of you have found our doctrinal statement on our church website? You found it. It's at the very end of the page. When there are guests who have never been to our church before, who are looking at our church website and they're deciding whether or not they want to come and worship with us today, the foot that I want for us, or that we as a team have decided to put forward, is love. We're a loving church. We're founded on truth, you can scroll down to the bottom of the page and find our doctrinal statement. We're founded on those principles. We'll hold fast to those. But we want you to understand that the faith, the truth that we have, is focused and geared towards loving other people. There is somebody, and I don't remember, it's probably three or four different guys who stole it from each other. I don't remember who said it. It wasn't me. So that if your doctrine doesn't teach you to love the things that God loves, then your doctrine is wrong. You can, I have stacks and stacks of systematic theology books that you can understand and dwell and waste. You can waste your life reading theology. 
But if, it, if you don't take the truth that is in theology, the truth that is in Scripture, and live it out in love towards other people, in compassion for where they're at, then we've missed it. Our faith is based on truth and lived in love. We, I see some nods. We're in agreement. It's about to get hard. So let's read a little bit more. 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 8. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. We're going to pause there. When we run into a list like that, um, there are parts of it that will stick out to us. They'll stick in our side either because we see ourselves in it, or we see the culture at large in it. We will like to point out one or two of these things as particularly bad. Or we know somebody who this applies to. And so we'll grab, a, we'll take a list like this, and the churches, the American churches, <laughs> the church in America, as I have perceived it over the last couple of decades, has taken a list like this and said homosexuality is the bad thing. And we're going to take a stand against this, and we've forgotten the other things in the list. I, I, we can talk about the vocabulary of what this word means and implies, but that's not the point. The point is that it's a whole picture. And this is bad news. Like, this is not something that we want to be excited about proclaiming. We will proclaim it faithfully because our faith is founded on truth. But it's the bad news. And so... As we go through this, I just want you to hold on because the next section is the good news. I'll give you, you know, another spoiler alert. We're not done yet. We're not camping here forever. So wait to get mad is what I'm saying. <clears throat> so the first verse, law, the first verse is verse 8. Law is for the lawbreakers. Let me give you the principle. Our faith guides our actions. We know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and the disobedient. This is kind of the house rules kind of idea, in that if, if the rules are well understood and everybody's abiding by the rules, then we don't actually need the rules if people just abide by them, right? But in the moment that you become a lawbreaker, in the moment that you break the rules, we have to be very clear about what the rules were so that you understand that you broke the rules. The law isn't for the people who are following the rules. The law is for the people who are breaking them, right? And the theological implications of what that means, when you think about the Old Testament and all the law that's contained in there, like there's a lot of stuff that we could spend a lot of time chewing on, and that would be a valuable discussion, but it's beyond the scope of what I'd like to share with you today. The point is that our faith guides our actions, because he gives this whole list of things that really, in a, in a lot of ways, mirror and echo the Ten Commandments. And he says, in accordance, or, and whatever else, whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. So here's the thing. He is he's making this statement 
based upon a theological framework that he doesn't explain. There are, there are reasons why he names these things as sinful, because they're contrary to the gospel. What is the gospel? We've sung it a couple times this morning. The gospel is that Jesus came, he died on behalf of our sins, he rose again, and he's promised to return. So we've sung it, and if you've been to church a lot, you're familiar with that. It's something you've heard over and over again. It's something you've heard other pastors say. Like It it can feel like old news, but there are implications of the fact that Jesus has forgiven our sins once and for all that also have implications for how we define sin. And he doesn't go into it here. I assume that in those three years that he spent working with the Ephesians, that he explained a lot of that stuff. Our task as followers of Jesus, is to study the scriptures front to back and to build that framework to understand. When we say this is a sin, how is that related to the gospel? And what do we do with that? Let's continue reading, verse 12. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Christ Jesus might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. Because by rejecting this, some have made a shipwreck of their faith. Among them are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. So our faith and our actions are both gifts from Jesus. We get, did we see that in the text? As he's talked about all of these things that are contrary to the gospel, that, are, that he considers blasphemies, he says, thanks be to whom? I thank him who's given me strength. You've got to read it. It's right there in front of you. Christ Jesus our Lord, thank you. So he's, he's pointing to, and all of the things that he could say, and all the frustrations, can you imagine being a leader who's spent three years with people, and now you're having to write, send, your, send somebody who you consider a trusted ambassador to write them a letter to say, get it together. There's frustration there. And he turns the attention back to Jesus. He says, I thank him. Because even though I can give you 
the doctrine, the truth. I've been entrusted with the truth to pass on to you. It's not I was entrusted with the truth to pass on to you because I had it all together from the get-go. Paul says, I was a persecutor. I killed people who believed this simply because they believed this. So there are, you would, I'm not going to say that. He did violence against people. He literally hunted people down and killed them. And then Jesus got a hold of him and said, hey, you know that thing that you've been fighting against, that you felt really good about yourself for, you know, standing up for the truth? Like, yeah, that truth that you've held on to isn't true. These people who are representatives of me, like, I am the Son of God. And I'm inviting you into this mission with me. That wasn't because Paul was a great speaker. That wasn't because Paul had done anything to deserve it. That's just Jesus doing Jesus stuff. We wouldn't know the name Saul of Tarsus if Jesus hadn't got a hold of it. So it all turns back to our faith, the truth of what we believe, and our actions, the ability to live it out, our gifts from Jesus. Over and over through this, he says, I received, I received, I received. And he's talking about the truth. And he concludes in verse 17 with this doxology, which I think is so great for having just finished studying Revelation, to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. When he thinks about Jesus, he gets excited about what he's done on his behalf. Hey, you don't have to earn your favor with God. Like, I don't know how to say that in a way that is meaningful to you this morning. There's nothing that you could do today that would make God more happy with you because Jesus has paid for your sin. We used to sing a song all the time called It Is Finished. It's finished. He's done it. So let the weary hearts rejoice. And a lot of times I think, God, you know, I know that you've given me this salvation. I know the truth of what that is. But today it doesn't feel like it. Today it feels like I have to do X, Y, Z, a, B, D, F, G. Like, I've got a long list of things that I think I need to do to make God happy with me on any given day. Um, but at the front, coming to the throne before the throne of God, we come, and it's paid for. So our work comes a place of gratitude, not a place of, I ought to earn it. And so when we tell people, hey, these things and this long list of things that make us uncomfortable, when we say these things are sin, we can have confidence identifying sin in the world because we know that it has been paid for. And we can trust that as we talk to people who are stuck in these sins, that there's been deliverance that's been provided for. Because it's easy. Like, we, we have friends, and if you spend any time in church, you get around church people, and we're all kind of good and we know how to talk in a way that's around the issue. You know what I mean? We can say stuff without ever actually saying it. And then you go out in the world and people are just like, yeah, well, I was sleeping with my girlfriend and blah, blah, blah. Now she's pregnant, so she had an abortion. It's like, 
those are not the things you're supposed to say. Those are things that are bad, and we can freak out. Um, what we have in this chapter is permission to say, yes, those are sins, but yes, those sins have been forgiven. And no, you don't know Jesus right now, and you are acting, as Paul did, in ignorance, and yet there is truth and faith and love that will set you free from all of that stuff. The life that you're living isn't the life you were meant to live. Our faith is based on truth and lived in love. we got to learn the truth. we got to figure out how that relates in love. Because our faith guides what we do. It guides our actions. We act out of gratitude. Our faith and our actions are both gifts from Jesus. I don't know about you. I can't get up on a Monday morning. Period. But I can't get up on a Monday morning and live for Jesus and do the right thing and love the people that get on my nerves and the people who don't communicate well and the people who do things that are frustrating to me. But is it a comfort to you this morning that both our faith and the actions that we live out because of what we believe are gifts from God? So what's church for? We're for a loving faith built on what is true. I don't think I put it on. Oh, I did. We are for a loving faith built on what is true. Like I told you at the beginning, the spoiler alert. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. So for us, we can kind of say, yeah, sure. Like, that makes sense. That's consistent with what I've heard in church all my life. My question is, how do the people that are not sitting here, how are the people that are at your workplace, how are the family members that don't care a lick about what Jesus has to say, how did they answer this question, what's church for? There's a ton of people that while we've been sitting in here that have been driving all, they're on their way to Ormond Beach to spend the day on the boat. What's church for? This is my only day off. Or this is the day I get to sleep in. We are for a loving faith that's built on what is true. And I, I hope that you see what I did there. The, question, the series is, what's church for? The answer is we. When I greet you on Sunday morning, it's good morning, church. Church is not a building you go to. It is the people that you belong to that belong to Christ. So we are for a loving faith that is built on what is true. And so the hard part is, how do we love people? How do we learn what is true? And how do we love people? As, um, as a church, something that we've done here lately is broken up. We had a, a, what was typically a Sunday school hour at 9 o'clock, and we've broken that up into be in the middle of the week or to be at another time in the week in other people's homes so that we are that much closer to people in the community who don't know Jesus. So there's small groups. Uh, one meets at my house on Wednesdays. One meets at Pastor Ryan's house on Sunday nights. Um, we're learning truth there. We're reading the Bible. We're asking hard questions of each other. We're learning truth there, and we're practicing how to love each other. Because as hard as it is and how difficult church can be, we're practicing for how to love people outside of the church, because that is the aim of our calling. Right? I can't tell if you're nodding with me or falling asleep. <laughs> So we have small groups. 
we prioritize our worship gathering, which is another time that we come and we are reminded of these truths in a way that encourages us to go out into the rest of the week. What has made a big difference for me is to see Sunday as the first day of the week as opposed to the last day of the week. We're starting today for whatever the rest of the week has in store for us. And some of us it's crazy. Some of us it's not as crazy. But God is the same through it. Amen? One other project that we're working on, as uh, Pastor Ryan mentioned, is that we're taking a collection for home, hands of mercies everywhere. This is another instance where we're loving people who might feel like they're not worthy of being loved. We're meeting a need without expecting anything in return. So I ask that you consider as you partner with us through that. As we come to a close, I'm going to pray, and then we'll take a few minutes to reflect on how God is speaking. I do want to encourage you to use these connection cards that are in the back of your chair. For me, it's really helpful, even if I don't share it and leave it in the basket, it's helpful for me to write down maybe a couple of the points that I've shared, or you know, the big point, or how is God speaking to us this morning? Because he has been here this whole time. God has been present in us and working in us today. So let's take a few minutes together and reflect on how he's speaking. If you want to share that with us, there's a basket in the entryway that you can drop that in. But let's reflect together before we sing together.